Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the gospel of, according to Luke, and we've been asking a question. How does a person follow Jesus? And we've seen that in Luke's gospel, Jesus explicitly answers this question. It's at the forefront of Jesus' agenda is to help us get this issue straight. How do we follow him? And in Luke's gospel, Jesus orients the answer to that question around five key issues. We've seen over the last four weeks, number one, to follow Jesus, we must be converted. Salvation is God's work in our life. Conversion is our response to God's saving work in our life. In other words, we have to respond to the saving work of God. There's no, like, just free card. You have to embrace it. In baptism, you're given the gift. But in conversion, you embrace the gift. You receive the gift. And how does Jesus say we respond to his gift of salvation? How do we convert? Well, he says, first of all, it requires belief. You have to actually believe That Jesus saves. And there's a whole lot of corollaries to that. You have to be convinced you need saving. You have to be convinced that he can do the saving. We have to put our faith in him. That his life and death and resurrection and ascension. That believing in that actually matters to God's work in our life. You can't just relate to that like you do to a piece of history, like observing it, buying that it happened or not. No, you have to have a kind of belief that embraces it and allows it to come into the center of your life and shapes you. Now, you not only have to believe in it, you have to repent. Repentance, it's all over Luke's gospel. You have to own up to the fact that the problem with this world is evil. That's the problem with our world. There is evil in this world. And it's not only out there, it's in here. And we have to repent of our own complicity with evil. We have to acknowledge that we have not only been treated with evil, but we've perpetrated evil ourselves. And not only do we have to believe and we have to repent, we, to convert, you also have to recognize A personal relationship with Jesus. Over and over in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, with me, with me, with me. To embrace God's saving work, you nurture a personal relationship with Jesus. And not only that, you also have to get to the place in your life where you fully surrender to him as Lord. Now, To follow Jesus, you have to begin following Jesus. Have you? I mean, have you done that? Not have you perfected all of those things, but there is a line. Have you crossed it into belief in Jesus, into repentance? Into a personal relationship where he becomes the moral center, the decision-making center of your life. 
Three weeks ago, we saw that following Jesus requires us to nurture life led by the Spirit of God. We have to nurture life in the Spirit. And we do this primarily by balancing prayer and action. By pulling aside to draw down on the energy of heaven, the vision of heaven, the discernment of God's will, and then engaging with this world. And that by holding those, that contemplative and activist side of our life in a careful balance, that is the way we nurture life in the Spirit. And then two weeks ago, we saw that in Luke's gospel, Jesus' followers attend to their relationship to money and stuff. It's interesting. See, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that when you look to Jesus to give you the answer of how to follow him, he pushes you not only into the life of heaven, but he pushes you into your life on this earth. And he, and he, and he does it at the issue of money. It's central to following Jesus. This comes up over and over. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is relentless about your relationship to your money, to your stuff. And he refuses to allow you to sideline that from following him. As soon as you want to compartmentalize and have a money life and a spiritual life and and treat money as if it's marginal or optional or only for those who get like super serious, Jesus forces you back to no. Listen, money is as fundamental to your spiritual life as it is to your life. Try to get along without money. That's about how well you can follow Jesus without dealing with your money. It's just not possible. To, re- to deal with your money before the face of God is to follow Jesus. To not deal with your money in God's presence is to not follow Jesus. Last week we saw that the fourth essential element in being a follower of Jesus is learning to pray. To really pray and to put it into practice daily, hourly. Prayer, money, conversion, life in the spirit. This is Jesus' answer to how we follow him. This week, the fifth Of the five issues that Jesus foregrounds as essential to following him. Your relationship to the poor. It's interesting. Are these the five issues many of us would come up if we were laying out in front of somebody how to follow Jesus? Maybe not. But it's what Jesus comes up with. Which kind of trumps what you or I would come up with. These are the five issues in Luke's gospel. That Jesus teaches his followers to, or, to think about following him. Your relationship to the poor. Now, if you've got a Bible, turn there. Or if you're a lesser human, scroll there. I only mean that halfway jokingly. Ernie, don't feel bad. Just own it. I know you're doing it back there, hidden on the... Oh, you brought a real Bible. Excellent. All right, all right. I'm sorry, Ernie. I'll never 
doubt you again. All right, Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah. Now, his is Jesus' cousin here, John. So his father, he's talking about Jesus' uncle. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now drop down to verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Get ready. Here it is. To guide our feet into the way. What does your Bible say? Of peace. The problem here is that our English word peace is kind of thin. It's helpful for us to know that this is a thick word in the Bible. It's a loaded word. It's not the first time this word has come up. In fact, it's come up all through the Bible. So that when you read the Bible like a novel, which is the way you should read it. In other words, left to right. When you read it that way, by the time you get to this moment, this word has already been defined. It's got a long history. It goes all the way back to the first pages. And what word is it? Does anybody know? Shalom. Shalom. Uh, they, those who answered, they, they cheated. They studied in advance here. Okay. If you didn't know that, it's shalom. So think about what Jesus' uncle is saying about Jesus. He's saying That the presence of Jesus in our midst will lead us into the path of shalom. Now that word lead, it means lots of things. It doesn't mean stand over here and point there. It means lead as in go in front of the vanguard. As in lead the way. As in we follow him. And when we follow him, where is he leading us? Where is he teaching us? What is he doing? The path of shalom. Now, what is shalom? In the Bible, it involves peace. Absolutely, peace is a legitimate translation. But it involves more than peace. Shalom is not merely the absence of hostilities. It's more than that. It moves beyond what we think of as absence of conflict to justice. There is no shalom without justice. If people are suffering from injustice, if they're being wronged, there is no shalom. Justice consists in the well-being of everyone, including the weak, the vulnerable, and the lowly. If someone is not given what's due to them, if their claim on others is not acknowledged by others, if others do not carry out their obligation to them, then shalom is wounded. There's no shalom without justice. So shalom is peace, but moves beyond peace to justice. But it keeps going. It doesn't stop at justice. Shalom is peace, but it moves beyond peace to justice, and it goes beyond justice to delight. These are the three critical issues of shalom. Peace, justice, and delight. Because justice alone can be grim. You ever been on the grim side of justice? A nation can be at peace with all of its neighbors, yet be miserable in poverty. To dwell in shalom is to enjoy life. It's to delight in life. 
It's to delight in living with your fellow humans and to enjoy life with yourself. Jesus didn't just forgive sins. He healed people. See, he pushed past peace to justice to delight. The prophets didn't simply speak about peace. They spoke about justice and they spoke about banquets, rich wine, well-aged wine, meat, as a dwarf would say, dripping off the bone. Listen to this intoxicating description of the new creation in Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Can you imagine what that sounds like to people who are hungry? Who day after day after day don't get to eat what they want to eat. That's shalom. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. It's peace, justice, and delight. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to lead the way into that for all people. The presence of Jesus in our midst does that. This is what it leads to. Now now go to Luke chapter 4. The passage that we heard read. Luke chapter 4. Verses 16 to 30. It's a very important passage in Luke's gospel. It is Jesus' announcement up front of his political campaign. It is Jesus' identification of his mission. This is his mission statement. All through Luke's gospel, we're told that he teaches in synagogues on the Sabbath. This is the only time we're told what he says in the synagogues. This is his programmatic statement. It is his agenda. It sits at the front of his whole ministry. And notice what it says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the lost. Is that what your Bible says? To the poor. Followed by three infinitive clauses, all explaining what he means. To proclaim good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus, at the outset of his ministry, clearly identifies work and care for the poor as organically related to the gospel. Those who think that the gospel is focused on the salvation of souls and then results in care for the poor are wrong. You can't push them into cause and effect. Those who think the gospel focuses on saving souls and marginalizes social justice as secondary or derivative do so at the cost of ignoring Jesus' own words. 
And those who think that the work of the church in Christianity and the gospel focuses on issues of justice and you're embarrassed by evangelism and mission and saving souls and the cross and the resurrection, you do that at the cost of ignoring Jesus' own words. Both are a distortion. One more passage. Look at Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist... Zechariah's son, Jesus' cousin. He's in prison. He's in prison because he's been saying Jesus is the one. He's the work of God in this world. He's the Messiah. He's in prison for that. So suddenly he begins to doubt that. Have you ever committed yourself to a course of action that you thought was right? Then it gets really hard. (laughs) Then you think, well, did I miss it? Here's John. So he says in verse 18, 19, he calls two of his disciples and he said, and he sent them to Jesus and said, ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one to come? Or should we look for another? Notice Jesus' answer. Look at verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. All the stuff he said in Luke 4, he was going to do. And he answered John's disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight The lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Yes, I am the one. And this is what it looks like when the one shows up. Now, this is the central message of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's this, one sentence. The creator God, Israel's God, is at last reclaiming the world as his own. In and through the life of Jesus. That is the central message of the Gospels. If you scratch through the Gospels trying to find justification by faith as the central message, there's only one place you can find that, and it's in Jesus' parable Of the Pharisee and the tax collector at prayer. But this is over and over through the Gospels. Justification by faith for those of you who think in those. That is is important. It's true. It's, It's how we respond to the good news. We have faith. That's our response. It's the inner calculus of how... That response of faith works out on our behalf. But it is not the good news. The good news is the creator is here. And that means shalom. At long last, all the evil that's ravaging this world has met one that it cannot defeat. The God who made this world has entered this world to redeem this world. That's the good news. The good news to all of your friends who are in despair 
about the evil in their life is that God has dealt with this, is dealing with this, and will ultimately deal with this. That's the good news. So what does your friend need to do? Respond to that good news in faith and repentance and personal relationship. Your, good, your friend needs to respond to that by converting. But the good news is the announcement that the world's true Lord has taken hold of this world once again. And, and John says, well, how do I know you're the world's true Lord? Well, look at what I'm doing. I'm doing what the creator does. Life, healing, wholeness, deliverance. Remember chapter 1, verse 79. He is leading the way into shalom. That's the good news. Now we have to find ways to communicate that. Right? So you've got some people who are overwhelmed. Some of your friends, some of you in this room. You're overwhelmed with your own guilt and your own shame. Well the good news for you is that the creator has returned and will lead you out of that. And, and, and the good news for those who struggle with all sorts of things. Is that the creator has returned and will lead you into shalom. Which is peace, justice and delight. So when you hear that announced, Romans chapter 1 says an amazing thing happens. When we say that, a mysterious power causes people to want in on that. And then we share with them how to get in on it. Faith, repentance, relationship with Jesus. All of those ways that are required to get in on that, to convert. In Shalom... There are no blind, all see. In Shalom, there are no deaf, everyone hears. There are no dead, everyone's alive. There are no poor, all have plenty. To limp is to fall short of Shalom. To be impoverished is to fall short of Shalom. And that is what's wrong with poverty. God is committed to shalom. Jesus came to bring shalom. In shalom there is no poverty. That's what's wrong with poverty. Now unfortunately, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are sometimes misread. And this tends to happen in one of two ways. Now, I'm going to caricature There's probably no one that exists fully in either one of these two camps, but for the sake of getting it out there. One way is by the liberals. One way is by the conservatives. Obviously, none of us purely exist in either of these two camps, but it helps. Two ways that too frequently the gospels are misread. Too often, a liberal version of Christianity tends to read the Gospels, the life of Jesus, as a social agenda with an unfortunate conclusion. An accidental and meaningless ending. And too often, conservatives, evangelicals, tend to read the Gospels as a a passion narrative with a long introduction. 
Passion narrative. That means the part about the, the crucifixion and resurrection. So too often evangelicals think all that stuff in the beginning is just a long introduction until we get to the, to the part that matters. And too often liberals tend to read all that stuff in Jesus' life about helping the poor and healing the blind and all that stuff as the stuff that matters. And the bit at the end is an unfortunate, embarrassing conclusion that's, that's optional. So in the liberal reading, the way of Jesus becomes the grounding of a social gospel whose naive optimism has no place for the radical fact of the cross. And in the conservative reading, the life of Jesus, the gospels, merely provide raw historical background so that Paul could develop justification by faith. So you get in liberalism a gospel that denies Paul, struggles with Paul, has a hard time with Paul, doesn't really like Paul, loves the way of Jesus. But in evangelicalism, you get a, a gospel that can't account for the gospels. Now, these are caricatures. So those who emphasize Jesus' social and political agenda, they often lash out at any attempt to highlight his death and resurrection. And missions becomes colonialism, an embarrassing fact of our history to hide ourselves from. That's just fundamentalism. Lacks sophistication. And those who emphasize Jesus' death and resurrection too often resist organically connecting Jesus' work with the poor and for the poor to the gospel. Because you don't want to ever be accused of a works-based salvation. But when we take the gospels seriously and allow the actual books we've named the gospels to tell us what the gospel is, so that we read Paul through the lens of the Gospels. So that we let the Bible like a narrative teach us what the Gospel is. So that we actually read Paul rightly. When we do this. When we let Jesus define the Gospel. Then we see two things. Number one. Jesus launched God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. That's the good news. That's the news that's good. Heaven has broken into earth. So we get heavenly life on earth. Salvation is life on earth restored to the way it happens in heaven. And this could not be accomplished without Jesus' death and resurrection. See, the challenge for the liberals is to say the death and resurrection are essential. Without them, there is no gospel. So what the liberals have to do is you've got to say, you've got to take that seriously and say, okay, if it's so important, if the Bibles actually are, if the Gospels actually are, long introductions with the Passion narrative, if they all climax at that, if, if these people were just as smart as us, if we're not chronological snobs, and we're willing to think that there was intelligence before the 20th century, then how come they saw the cross and the announcement in Nazareth as not bifurcated, but actually organically of a whole, and that you can't get the announcement in Nazareth without the cross and resurrection, 
See, the challenge for those of you who really see clearly the social agenda is to account for the cross. The work of Jesus is the answer to a problem that is so deep, social programs alone cannot deal with it. Secondly, when we let Jesus' own words in life define the gospel, we see that Jesus died for our sins. Yes, absolutely. And his whole agenda of dealing with sin and all of its effects and consequences was never about only rescuing individual souls from heaven. But it's about saving humans so that they can become a part of the project of saving life on earth. So when we see Jesus healing, it's good news. The good news is that the one true God has taken charge of the world. But in a way, we find con- it, we, we, God's answer to evil is Jesus coming to this earth and taking charge. Nobody saw it coming. The prophets could not imagine this. The Jews of Jesus' day could not imagine it. And the Greeks of Jesus' day thought it was silly and lacked sophistication. Sort of like the world we live in today. The good news is that the one true God has taken charge of the world. In and through Jesus, his life and ministry and death and resurrection and, and ascension. All the old ancient hopes have been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. In Jesus, God has grasped the world in a new way. To sort it out. That's what he's doing with the sick. He's sorting it out. He's restoring. Reconciling. Redeeming. Renewing. All those re-prefixes. And he's doing it in a way that is beyond our wildest dreams. The ancient sickness that has crippled the world and humans with it has been cured at last. So new life can rise up in its place. Life has come and it is pouring out like a mighty river into the world. The good news was and is that this happened in and through Jesus. And one day it will happen completely and utterly in all of God's creation. And we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, we can be caught up. This can happen in our life. New creation can happen in me. I can actually find healing for my shame and my, my sin. I can have the real guilt in my life taken away. Who wouldn't want that? When you sin, you are guilty, and it sticks on you, and it stains you. But in Christ, the stain can be removed. And then you can begin the difficult, long process of believing that. And that can enable you to relate better to your spouse and your friends and your coworkers. It can give you a toughness in the face of suffering, a resilience in the face of the pain of this life. You can get caught up into this new creation work and that forgiveness you experience, you can draw down on it and forgive people who sin against you. 
And you know what it is when you forgive somebody who harms you? That's new creation life. It's just an hors d'oeuvre. It's just, it's just a little snack of what all of life will be like in the new heavens and new earth. A bunch of forgiven people who forgive each other. Walking around with no shame. And no guilt. This is the gospel. That Jesus did this. And you get to experience it. You can embrace it. And to embrace it, you have to believe it. And if you will believe it, you will be justified by your faith. So, the gospel for Jesus was brought to those who were poor, who were sick. That was gospel work. Healing the blind was gospel work. It's new creation work. It's bringing the kingdom. It's bringing life where there's death. So John Anderson, you heal. Paul Yoder heals doctors. That's kingdom work. Nurses, that's kingdom work. It's right close to the gospel. You were mentioned in Jesus' manifesto. You were named. Mental health care workers, you're doing kingdom work. When we recognize that cancer is a lack of shalom, this fact calls us to search for a cure. So Ruth, I saw you somewhere. Ruth, she's graduating in May from JMU and she goes off to do her PhD in chemistry with a concentration in chemical biology right at the forefront of the research of how bodies can be healed. Kayla, who moved here from Penn State, where she earned a degree in biomedical engineering with an emphasis on chemical engineering, and is now at Merck. That's kingdom work. That's holy orders. It's named in the Nazareth Manifesto. And Ed Cash, an engineer at Merck. This is kingdom work. He doesn't go home and then add spiritual kingdom stuff to his life. No, his job is right at the forefront of kingdom work. Go for it. Katrina recently taken a job in this, this prayer we've been praying for months and months and months for our jails. We've been praying it. And then Katrina gets an offer to go right into the jails and work right at the front of all of that. She's in holy orders. She's, she's in kingdom work. And notice something really important here. Notice how thinking about the work of those involved in healing. Notice how this helps us think about the work of caring for the poor. With disease, the good news is that the creator of the world loves the world and all who bear his image. Stay with me a minute. So when you look at someone with a disease or a sickness, or what have you, You shouldn't think of them in terms of what they deserve. No, that distorts the vocation. Instead, in healthcare, in mental health work, you've got to look at this person in front of you who's sick, rooted, you've got to look at them from a perspective that this person before you bears the image of God. And so you owe that person dignity 
and honor and love. And so what do we do when we see a creature made in the image of God who is suffering from disease, sickness, and ill health? We do two things. We search for a cure and we care. We care. That's what we've got to do with poverty. The work of shalom, the work of the gospel, the work of the good news of Jesus involves both searching for a cure and caring for those in poverty. Caring for the poor is essential to following Jesus. He named it over and over and over again. It's at the heart of his own self-identity. And we heard it in our other New Testament passage, Galatians chapter 2. It's fascinating. In Galatians chapter 2, there are two options. This group called the Judaizers who are saying, your identity as a Christian can, can rest in empty rituals. And Paul's saying, no. You cannot use religion to let you off the hook from ethics. You know what the opposition is? Circumcision and caring for the poor. In other words, rituals without being given the responsibility to act in this world with compassion. No. Paul refused to allow the Galatians to back up into that kind of religion. Did you notice what it said at the end? Yes. And remember the poor. And so Church of the Incarnation. Let's follow Jesus. Let's follow him into the very hard, very complicated work of caring for the poor. And if we don't care for the poor, we're not following Jesus. We've got to develop a reputation as a church, as individuals and as an institution of generosity. Of uniquely caring for the poor. We've got to develop a sense of economic responsibility for the poor. And there are many, many complicated and nuanced issues that we have to work out. We have to work at this. It's vital that we do this work with the wisdom of the serpent and the innocence of the dove. We have to avoid the trap of enabling and perpetuating poverty. But at the same time, that danger should never lead us to inaction. Let's follow Jesus. College students, it's going to take every inch, ounce of intelligence you've got. Because this is tough. This is tough work. We've got to get to work. We've got to work hard and patiently and consistently at uncovering the causes of systemic poverty. And then work hard at eliminating them. But even if we fail to do that, and while we're working at that, we still have the duty to aid those who are trapped. Two primary places. We're a neighborhood church. We're a downtown church. That's where we focus our energy. Two primary locations of the poor downtown that I want to put on your radar. Lineweaver and the children of immigrants at Spotswood. 
See, all I've done is sound the kingdom note. But we've got to get into the concrete reality of this. There are other places of poor, the jail. Poor in Luke's gospel is all of those who are disenfranchised and don't have the power to actually help themselves. Every time the poor are mentioned except one in Luke's gospel, there's a whole list afterwards of diseases and healings and things like that. They all explain what he means by the poor. Only in chapter 7 does the word poor come at the end of a list of those things. But it's the same meaning. It's, this is what he means by the poor. He means those who don't have the ability and the resources to help themselves when they fall into problems. Now, obviously, all of us are poor in that sense. But there's a real way in which there's a whole group of people that live under the weight of that reality. And that has to be a part of our identity, responding to their their needs. And I'm not saying that we do this always through the institution. Because our church exists in two dynamics. As an institution and as an organism. So while Katrina's in the jail, the church of the incarnation is in the jail. Because Katrina's a member of our body. We've got to to go for this. Every single one of us, through our job and through our neighbor. That's the primary way. And we will find ways that we as a church will institutionally engage. But the vast majority of the way we engage is as individuals, as the organism of the church. We have to do this. Because we're followers of Jesus. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus launched the kingdom of God in this world. That's the good news. And we're agents of that kingdom. So let's go for it. Let's pray.